The views and opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the California Board of Regents, or new DACA applicants. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the December 8, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, we'll get timely analysis from David Domke, University of Washington political science and communications professor and self-proclaimed engaged citizen putting in his lot with common power. It's a two-parter. I'll talk with him today and later we'll speak to others organizing inside common power. The stakes in the two Georgia U.S. Senate seats up for electoral grabs on January 5th of next year will determine which party will be in the majority in the U.S. Senate. We'll get started with David Domke's helpful insight. We'll be right back after a station break. Ask a Leader. My guest for the full program is David Domke, University of Washington professor and organizer at Common Power. David worked as a journalist for several newspapers, including the Orange County Register and Atlanta Journal-Constitution in the 1980s and early 1990s before earning his PhD in mass communications at the University of Minnesota. As a professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Washington, David Domke's research is focused on communication, politics, and public opinion in the US. In recent years, David has worked closely with several organizations on communication and engagement in the public arena with emphasis on racial and religious identity in politics. In the past two years, he's begun to lead week-long civil rights pilgrimages of students and community adults to the US South. He's contributed, been a part of the team launching Common Purpose, and he now serves as its director of fieldwork and learning. And his students speak his praises. He was honored with the University of Washington's Distinguished Teaching Award, was named the Washington State Professor of the Year by the Council of Advancement and Support of Education and the Carnegie Foundation for Advancement of Teaching, was selected a favorite professor of the University of Washington graduating class, and was selected as the university's freshman convocation keynote speaker. I've had the pleasure and privilege of attending on both sides of this general election 2020, a couple of his salons where I hoped that he would eventually join us to share some of his secret sauces. He'll speak with us today and later in this month, I'll be bringing on Charles Douglas III on digging out that both of them will cover various aspects of the political landscape of the Georgia US Senate runoff elections and ways folks can work in various capacities. So he's going to talk about his role in recent campaigns, what worked and what didn't work, and we'll also be interested in messaging. So folks, wait for your assignments. Listeners, they are coming. David comes to us today from his home in Seattle. Welcome to Ask a Leader, David Domke. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Claudia. Well, thank you. So first, I'm just curious, Find out, we'd like to find out what was your beat who did you work with at the Orange County Register? Things, they just look a little bit different since B1 Bob Dornan was, uh, <laughs> among others, leading this region. 
Sure. Well, Orange County has become a, a pretty purple political area over the last couple of decades. Uh, when you look at who lives there and who represents them in Congress. The Orange County Register was this really not good newspaper, but in the mid-1980s, a group of folks came in and turned it around. Jim Colonna was the executive uh, editor, and I worked there in the late 1980s when it, they were actually really becoming a fierce competitor to the Los Angeles Times. And in 1989, the Register was the newspaper of the year by the American Newspaper Publishers Association. I was just a starting out reporter for them. I worked in the sports department. I worked with some folks that were from the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, incredible mentors of mine. Uh, and I got to be there from uh, 1988 through 1990 and uh, just, it was really formative for me to see these, these folks build a great institution. It, it was a freedom newspaper, which is, you know, editorially a very libertarian publication. Uh, and so it definitely leans right, but that wasn't the part of the newspaper that I worked in. But I think folks who knew were distinguishing between the editorial board and the cub reporters or the, the reporters yeah. in general. And I think you could, it wasn't hard to outperform the Los Angeles Times, even though it had a building in Santa Ana uh, in Orange County <laughs> that they were not doing. They had a lot of stories that they just simply weren't covering for. Uh, we could name all the reasons. So was I just wanted one more detail that was Roberto Santana. Was he on the staff at the time you were? Um, I'm sorry, I don't I don't remember. Uh, he's created now an online paper that's doing everything we wanted the Orange County Register to be doing for decades. And it's oh, okay. the voice of OC. So just, uh, and I've had him on not that long ago. Okay. So th that would be an interesting update for you. So now your day job, David, is an academic and you're also an activist. And I would like for you to, to talk about how you're, you know, working that out and then we and I and I have an example of a, a stellar activist from that launched out of the academic world when uh, after we hear from you about how you manage these roles. Maybe you get to do it because of the the content of your coursework. Well, I uh, I have was I've been at the University of Washington for 21 years on the faculty uh, and have had tenure since 2002. So that's a really important space to be in certain protections for academic freedom. But over the last 10 years, I've become much, much more involved in the political arena. And I study and teach about this. So most of what I'm doing um, over that span of time has been things that I would teach about, trends that I see, messages that I would uh, have researched, uh, patterns in politics among candidates, among advertising, among party affiliate, party political parties. Most of that really falls pretty safely in the space of what I do as a professor. And of course, as a citizen, I'm free to, to, to engage politically however I wish. Uh, all that said, I am on leave at this time. So I am, I'm officially not at the University of Washington as a teaching professor at this time. And when you're on leave, you're an unpaid faculty member of the university and you're free to explore other professional opportunities. So my work since um, for the last year and a half, I've been on leave and I am officially still, I can return to my position at the UW, but it's unlikely I will. I uh, am almost certain to continue this work in a, in a full-time capacity and eventually kind of step away permanently from the UW. 
Oh, okay. And we'll we'll talk about the organization Common Power a little bit later. But but I wanted to hold up, and my listeners have heard me mention him often enough that there was a chemistry professor, maybe you recall when he was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1995, I think it was, uh, in chemistry, it was Sherwood Rowland. And once he had made a connection between chlorofluorocarbons and the ozone layer depletion, he became the penultimate activist. He left the bench and he went on all over the world to bring attention because that that it was a heavy lift for people to acknowledge that connection that he made. And there was resistance to him being an activist amongst many of his colleagues, his peers, like what, why aren't you staying on the bench doing your research? Because he could delegate everything to a team that he had built here at UC Irvine. But it was, it was an essential kind of step that he could be a model to everybody that academics can in fact be activists. Well, I, I, I appreciate that example. And there's, I think it's a growing phenomenon in American academia that people who are involved as in our stellar researchers and teachers don't just simply want to work with the people that are a part of the university that they're at. They also want to be engaged in the broader communities. Uh, and so I think it's, it's a generational process and it's tremendously shifting. That said, I, don't, I wouldn't use the terminology of activist for myself. I, okay. I, think, I think that that's a, that really is an honor reserved for the folks who, who are doing the work um, every day in, in marching and in protesting and in issuing demands for social change. And I think that I would say I'm more of an, an engaged citizen who is working in the, the, the establishment political arena, very, very much more than most academics for sure. But I think that that the terminology of activism is actually a higher bar than what I what I engage in. I'm I'm simply somebody who gets to gets to be an active citizen and actually has the has the uh, the, the responsibility to be so. Okay, thank you. That's great. And so, well, I was going to ask you about the feedback loop and activism because that came up in the most recent salon that I heard you speak at. Maybe if even if you're going to demure to who gets the mantle of activist label, that uh, you can speak to the any of the academics that are listening now or their circle of friends. That feedback loop that I think people new to organizing uh, and participation. They don't know about that yet. It's a little secret to them. And you, you spoke to a little bit and there were other contributors at the salon talking about how it starts working. Well, for example, at the University of Washington, there is, an, there is a center and that, that's a kind of typical academic thing. There's a center where professors come together and faculty, I'm sorry, students come together and people from outside the university come in and, and engage in conversations and there's research projects and there's fellowships. There's a center for the informed public. And that center brings together people from sociology, from the information school, from communication, from political science. And that's only been around for about a year and a half at the university. And it's come out of the Trump era. It's come out of the reality that facts and truth are under assault in American life in significant ways. And if I was uh, leaning hard into my identity as a professor, then that's the place I would be at. I would be in that kind of a setting because they're, they're engaged with the public. They're bringing their knowledge and their wisdom and their commitments to academic research, to students, to a broader uh, kind of knowledge 
process. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a, just kind of slightly, I'm across like a, the canyon kind of waving to them and they're waving to me on the other side, which is, you know, I'm the, I'm a, I'm a person over here who says, like, I, I want to come to your conversations over at the Center for Informed Public, but I want to reside over here. This is where I want to do my daily work. I want to be involved in fighting against voter suppression. That's what we do at Common Power, fighting against voter suppression, for fighting for what we call voting justice. And it really comes down to daily commitments. I want my daily commitments to be, you know, on the ground civic outcomes, very measurable in the electoral arena. And as opposed to the, out, the daily commitments being one of producing academic research, articles, books, uh, and so on that goes in the academic space. So I think that we wave to each other, we know each other very well, and I'm thrilled that there's both of us, and I think we need both of us. Uh, and I think that that conversation among those across that canyon is pretty, is getting more and more robust, but I think there's always gonna be, you know, different commitments on a daily basis. And that's, that's good, that's good. So I'd like for you, David, to reflect on the successes and the sort of the shortcomings in your work, you sure. were involved in 2016 and in 2020. I'm, there were many, many, as I, I think lots of us were sort of watching in a little bit of horror that, that there were shortcomings of 2016 that were, were persisting into the 2020 election season. Could you talk about what you were witnessing? We're sort of, you're talking earlier about sort of uh, patterns going on. Talk about those in general. Then I would then I'll break it down in some other detail about the actual messaging. Sure. So I, I've done a series of public talks around how we got to this demagogue president. And we've had demagogues in politics in American life forever, but they haven't become president. And so Trump is the first one to ascend to the presidency. And uh, he didn't you know, create this, this hostile to voting, hostile truth environment. He, he leveraged it, though in significant ways. And it, it really is rooted in a, a couple decades long phenomena that hit another level when Obama became president and the Tea Party uh, went off on these arguments about him not being an American citizen, about him being Muslim, uh, and which of course Trump stepped upon and, and used, seized to his advantage. In 2016, my, my take is that in 2016, people on the Democratic whether you say big D democratic or small D democratic side of things um, in our society, we're not sufficiently aware, sufficiently engaged, and they also didn't have the tools to kind of stop this demagogue. So there was a lack of awareness, a lack of engagement, sufficient engagement, and also they didn't have the right tools to do, to, even if they were engaged. And since then, you've had a this kind of explosion of awareness of engagement and increasing tools from technological tools to activism tools to to re, to dollars to raising dollars to do this work and since 2016 we've had this kind of new infusion of of democracy in america among white americans for sure and people of color have said you know kind of welcome to our world this is the world that we've lived in for a long time where democracy doesn't work for us and so you have this gathering of a coalition on the left that in 2018 didn't really have a pushback against it. The, the Trumpians didn't fight hard in 2018. And so the Democrats had a lot of success in 2018. But in 2020, both sides were, were fully engaged on this kind of battlefield. And the Trump turnout was massive. You know, he got, he got about 18% more votes than he did in 2016. He's the first incumbent president 
in 120 years to lose while still getting more votes. All the other incumbent presidents who lost got fewer votes in their original election. Trump got a lot more, but the Democrats and the progressives were more determined to defeat him. So there is this democratic engagement that has mattered. However, the polarization that is part of our country, defining attribute of our country is still in place. So down ballot, those Republicans who, would, who peeled off from voting for Trump at the top of the ticket, they still voted Republican down the ballot. And so the Democrats have made some progress politically since 2016, more seats in the House. They, the Republicans had control of the House in 2016. The Dems do narrowly, but they do now. The Dems have gained a few seats in the Senate. They have gained a few more uh, governorships in the country. But we're a very polarized country um, politically. The only way that we move out of that is through some kind of consensus building and also a sense that there is a um, ethical or moral high ground that comes with one position rather than other. I'm not really confident that we're going to get there on the ladder. So right now it's just a pitched battle where hopefully a Joe Biden person might have the skills and resources to be able to, to heal us in ways that Donald Trump never had any interest in doing. Well, as far as messaging in the 2020, uh, there, I was watching some forecasters quite closely and sure. there were other analysts and former administration campaign advisors that were weighing in that the Democrats are preternaturally bad at messaging, missing the opportunity that like right now, lots of people had no idea what Biden's actual policy, what he offered was going to be policy in his administration. That was all, I mean, I remember from the very announcement that he made of, being, of running for the office of president, it was all about him talking about character and about him comporting in the campaign. So it was sort of like a blank slate. So that that messaging created a bit of a vacuum for the guy that was <laughs> writing those terribly small checks from the White House, getting a jump on sort of economic uh, connections in his presidency. So I wanted you to talk about, since messaging is your bread and butter, David Domke, where the Democrats might have benefited with a specific thing, because we're going to talk about whether or not that's going to be used in the Georgia Senate runoff races in the, the next weeks. Sure. Well, Joe Biden's message, as you just mentioned, was, was about him as a human being and what he wanted to restore to the integrity of America. And that was, that was a message that he delivered against Donald Trump. And in a COVID environment where the campaigning was very restricted on the Democratic side, the actual in-person campaigning, Biden's message worked really well for Biden. Biden is, a, is known by you know, 95 plus percent of Americans. He has a, he's a known entity. He's, he's thought to be a decent human being. So his message worked just fine against Donald Trump because Trump consistently showed us how he didn't care about Americans through his COVID responses through his treatment of protesters after the George Floyd killing. So Biden was fine in a COVID world with a message that was about character. But the rest of the Democrats down the tickets in Senate races, in House races, in state legislature races around the country, um, they, they did not crystallize their messages around healthcare satisfactorily, around local politics that matter, healthcare, education, climate, and jobs. Those four pieces, and that hurt the Democrats in Senate races all over the country. They also were essentially running against Trump and the Republicans nationally. 
And uh, down the ballot, since there were all these Republicans who are very comfortable not voting for Trump at the top of the ticket, but still voting Republican down ticket, that the Dems down ticket didn't win over those folks. That leads us to Georgia. What you're seeing on the Democratic side here with John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock is a campaign about Georgia. This is not a campaign about Donald Trump. It's not a campaign about national Republicans. It is a campaign about how David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, the two Republican incumbents, don't serve the state of Georgia. That's what a statewide race needs to be about. And you know, we are we are seeing that in their communications, you know, crystallized in uh, Ossoff calling David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler the Bonnie and Clyde of kind of insider trading and robbing of Georgians. This very evocative image of the way that they don't care about anybody but their own dollars. Okay, and put Warnock, a period. We'll put a period at that. I'm and Warnock. And put a period there. I want. To, I'm not done yet with the 2020. Um, the down ticket. So, I, but before we go entirely open up the whole Georgia race, I'd like to find out what was learned by the influx of resources and some activism in some of the U.S. Senate races. I'm thinking mainly of Maine's race between Sarah Gideon challenging incumbent Susan Collins. What, the, what lessons were learned because of the, there being a blowback, a resentment of the Maine constituents and gave Susan Collins a pretty hefty majority? Well, I think that where Maine is, is an example both of what you said were the, the, the main Mainers, that's the term they use. They do. Didn't want this kind of infusion of outside wealth and people or message. And I think that Maine is an end of the continuum on that dimension, not wanting outsiders. They have phrases, you know, and the come from away phenomenon of, you know, look, if you're not from Maine, like fourth generation, then you're not a real Mainer, right? Um, so I think yeah, at least in, <laughs> in New England, yeah, it starts at four or fifth generation. You have to trace sure. it back. Yeah. So I think that, that um, and, and Collins is, you know, has this long level of support from Democrats in the state. So I think that we should take what happened in Maine as a, as a cautionary tale of don't try to nationalize this race too much. It doesn't, you know, Gideon ended up with $14.5 million in the bank unspent. She still has that money. She didn't need all that money. What she really needed was a more effective apparatus and engagement in the state that made the case of how Susan Collins wasn't serving Maine, okay? But when you move outside of the end of the continuum states, such as a Maine or an Alaska, where they really take this provincialism very in intensely, and you move to these more uh, states that have massive cities in them and people moving there uh, who are highly educated, either for they go there for college experiences or for really growing jobs. And there's there's uh, international companies located there. Like Pennsylvania. And, like a Pennsylvania, a Michigan, a Illinois, and Arizona, where Maricopa County is this huge county uh, in terms of growing population, or a Georgia, which has an Atlanta and also has a Savannah and in, uh, you know, University of Georgia in Athens. Georgia is not gonna respond to the outside influx in the same way that Maine did. That be, partly because the outside influx is happening on both sides in Georgia. All of the people that are campaigning for David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, they're all outsiders. They are, they are they are Marco Rubio, they are Lindsey Graham, they are Joni Ernst, they are folks like that. And then there's Donald Trump, 
uh, coming down today uh, today to speak there. On the Repo on the Democratic side, they're actually keeping outsiders pretty much at bay, uh, and they're only using them in their ground game. You haven't seen Barack Obama show up in the state. He will. Joe Biden will. Kamala Harris will. But I really think that that blowback that occurred in Maine is not going to be featured in Georgia. I think that the dynamics are very different. And I think the reality is that the Democrats need to have a state-specific message. And I think that's the most important thing. And I, I think Gideon did not have that to the depth she needed in Maine. And what I understood as well, that where a huge amount of money was coming in from out of state in, the, in Maine, as well as other places, it came at a time where the campaigns were already set with what they were going to, uh, with their approach and their, that infusion of capital, they had not banked on when they were setting up their strategies and their methods. So it was sort of a misfit that, that it didn't change their game at all. They just had all that money. So it wasn't you. So there, that it wasn't, they weren't able to be nimble enough to respond differently. Maybe they hadn't already taken all enough ads out uh, yeah, early enough. Think about this as a, just as a quick strat, strategic, different decision that could have been made. What if Sarah Gideon had said, starting January 1st, 2020, I am not going to take any out-of-state money and I am going to suffer in terms of my advertising dollars and perhaps my staffing size because of that. But I'm not because I'm about this for Maine. I'm in this for Maine. I think that she would have gotten two reactions to that. One, more Mainers would have stepped up to support her and others in Maine who are you know, lovers of Collins but might've been more independent or Democrats would have respected that decision. So would she have lost money? Yeah, she would not have gotten as much money but you gotta weigh that against exactly what you're trying to do strategically. I would have loved to have seen like that, that, hype, that counterfactual have occurred. But there, the grassroots that were so livid with how Susan Collins has performed in the U.S. Senate in the last year and a half, that uh, they were determined to bring that capital in. So there, there would have been a, some kind of a jam up, I guess. It would have been pretty messy. Now, you, you could have just declined the dollars. You can handle okay. that. Okay. All right. You can All right. do that. Okay. Sure. For those of you who've just joined me, I'm Claudia Shamba, host of Ask a Leader. My guest today is David Domke, formerly a political science communications professor at University of Washington, now putting all of his heft into his director of field work at Common Power. We are recording this program on December 5th. There will be breaking news from this recording until broadcast this Tuesday, December 8th. So uh, let's go then into the Georgia runoff races. The American political universe has, is it's sort of shifting a little bit here, as you've talked about, that the factors that typically go into special runoff elections may not be the factors that we have before us in the state of Georgia. You were really good to break all that down. And what's different? Because I, going into this runoff, we thought, oh gosh, you know, the, the most disciplined voters are the conservative Republican voters, but you have factors you're bringing out that make this super, super different. So Georgia is a, a state that, you know, sits at the intersection of like the old South, the, the Confederacy and Neo-Confederacy and the new South. The new South being a much more uh, diverse, highly educated, uh, high-tech world. 
Atlanta has always been kind of the, the place that has strived to be that. It has incredible educational institutions in that state and people move to Atlanta to live and to work. And Coca-Cola is there, CNN is there. This is where their international headquarters are. Delta Airlines, the Centers for Diseases Control is based there. That's in right. So, you know, it is this confluence, this, this intersection of Old South and New South. And because of that, it's, it's got all these, this, this volatility to it right now. So it isn't just that the Democrats won at the presidential level, they're being meet, met by this massive resistance to it by people who say that they've stolen the election and that, and you have this internal kind of battle going on among Republicans in the state because the old South can't accept the new South's arrival. Part of the New South is a large and growing and highly educated African-American population and a, a small but growing and highly educated and increasingly active Asian-American population and uh, Hispanic populations. So the combination of those three entities, a significant long-term and increasingly highly educated African-American population, and then a smaller but growing Latino and Asian-American populations, paired with a shift among highly educated whites towards more of the Democratic Party, um, has produced a coalition that almost got Stacey Abrams into the governorship. She would have been the first black female governor in American history. Almost got her there in 2018, perhaps did, but there were some complications in the voting. And then got Biden-Harris across barely by about 11 to 12,000 votes this year. But the battle is significant. And in runoff elections, where one candidate hasn't received 50% of the vote, the majority, so the top two advance to runoff again, to where one has to get at least 50%. Right. In runoff elections, turnout drops quite a bit historically. I mean, and that really hurts Democrats usually. So the Democrats need to move that coalition that has now come together, get them out to vote in ways that they haven't historically gotten out to vote. Meanwhile, you have these Republicans who see this old South Republicans who see this as kind of a, uh, a defining, almost uh, Gettysburgish kind of moment where they want to stand strong and fight. And they believe that like, if we lose on this hill, next up is gonna be South Carolina. Next up is gonna be North Carolina or going West, Alabama, Mississippi. So the, there's some other factors here too, that they're now what's confounding though, the typical factors are, it's this kind of, um, it's a, a, I'm trying to think of the right kind of metaphor where there's this a claim of fraud coming from the White House, coming from the incumbent centers, that there is voter fraud. And so they're discouraging their base yeah. in some ways so that there's some base maybe surging. I'll get to why they might be surging a little bit, but what, so there's this kind of, jam up in the turnstile of the uh, the subway station. They're coming and they're going. And that, that may undermine the typical, reliable, conservative runoff turnout. Yeah, so we have an unprecedented situation here, Claudia. We have, this is the state in which Republicans have are fighting with the greatest tooth and nail kind of process to argue that the presidential election was stolen. The arguments are coming on all fronts for how that supposedly was stolen. The, the voting machines changed the votes. Um, the election officials didn't process the votes the right way. The secretary of state and governor didn't do signature matching. 
they're both Republicans, those two folks. All of that is not true. It's not remotely true, but it has produced this cascade of doubt and question about whether any vote could be counted legitimately at any point in time in Georgia at this time. Could anybody have a legitimate vote counted? So you have Republicans on one side, many of them saying, you can't trust the system at all. Not one bit. You can't trust it at all. And then they're supposedly going to convince their followers to get out and vote. So it's like saying to somebody, uh, you know, this thing tastes terrible. Now drink it. Okay. Well, that's not how it's going to work. You have to give them a reason to somehow get out and vote. And right now you're telling them why they shouldn't vote because the system's rigged. And in, in this case, even further now, you have some people who are arguing Republicans again, who are arguing that the two governor, the two Senate candidates, David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, are not sufficiently fighting for Donald Trump either. So they're not even worthy. These are all Republicans doing this to each other. Given all of that, this, this creates an opening for the Democrats that really is remarkable in the state. It is a red political state. No, there is no statewide Democrat holding office in the state. There hasn't been a statewide Democrat holding office in 16 years in the state. So it is a red political state. But Biden and Harris won it narrowly. Abrams almost won it in 2018 for the governor's race. And given this internal fighting among the Republicans, uh, it is a possibility that the Democrats could win both of these seats. And that's, that's just stunning, really. It's truly stunning that the Dems could make such progress. Let me just give you one quick example. So two main states that have been traditional Republican states flipped this year in the presidential election, Georgia and Arizona. Three others flipped, but they were across the North and have traditionally been Democratic states. But right. Arizona, and, Arizona and Georgia are the two traditional Republican states that moved towards the Democrats. Arizona is a legitimately purple state. They have a statewide secretary of state who is a Democrat, and they have two senators now who are Democrats. That's a purple state. That's what that is. Georgia has none of that. All right. So this is a red state that looks like it might swing dramatically purple in the space of two months. Whoa, that's really compelling stuff. Me as a professor is like, wow, that's really interesting. I'm, I've got to study this. Me as a citizen says, we need to be there. We need to help this happen. Right. So, so David, I'm just wondering when you're talking about the unprecedented dynamic of bad mouthing the process inside Georgia, it what is if you're talking about people that are forced to drink that water, I'm just wondering about what would the would you think? Are you watching the governor, the Republican governor Kemp, and the Secretary of State Raffensperger? Will they potentially not endorse either of the Republican candidate pair in the pair? Or do, would they, because they've been very adamant, especially the Secretary of State and the, uh, the other official, I'm trying to think of his name. Um, that's, that's, no, no, the one that spoke in the, the, the stairway chamber the, um, that said enough is enough. Oh, right. Yeah. He's the deputy secretary of state. The, uh, Ga yes. Gabriel Sterling is his Ster name. Gabriel Sterling. Thank you very much. And so if, if they have had so much uh, enough of the bad mouthing they've gotten, especially from Senator Leffler, that they would decide to do something also surprising. Is there, what, where does your mind go with that possibility of unprecedented kinds of factors? 
So the, the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, and the Deputy Secretary of State, Gabriel Sterling, will not endorse anybody because of the standing they hold. However, they're very clear and they have their full right to say, look, I'm a Republican. And so I am rooting for these candidates. And they, Raffensperger and Sterling have both made very clear that they are disappointed with the outcome of this presidential election as on a personal sense, but that they're, they're proud of the way that the election has been carried out in their professional positions. I don't think that they will not endorse positions, but they are very fine. It's totally professionally fine for them to say, look, I'm hoping that Leffler and Purdue win. Kemp, Kemp is a free agent as the governor. He will completely and has already, you know, given all of his attention and support to Leffler and Purdue and will continue to do that. There's, so there, those kind of pathways forward for Kemp, the governor, and Raffensperger and Sterling, the secretaries of state, are very clear. They're do constitutionally. Think, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do I think anything else is going to happen? For example, like, is the secretary of state going to somehow pull some kind of shenanigan? Do I think the governor is going to do something? Well, there is enormous pressure on both of them to institute a special legislature session right now that, and it's a Republican dominated state legislature, darn near super majorities in both chambers of the legislature. There's pressure on them to call a special session where there would be new policies put into place to make voting more difficult. However, we're so close to the election that to do that would be seen as completely uh, cynical and partisan to do. And so they have resisted these calls for about a week and a half now. And every day they resist it, I think it becomes less likely that they will call that. Well, who do they anger in not calling that? They anger the Republicans even more, okay? So it is this internal battle that if it didn't matter so much for the country, I might as a scholar and as a citizen just say, well, this is fascinating. I'm just gonna watch this like I watch a sporting event. But of course, it has all of the implications in the world for this country. And so our responsibility is to, for our organization, Common Power, is to be making phone calls, texting, and uh, postcarding, as well as sending dollars into the state to support the endeavors. Right, right. And we're going to have Charles Douglas III talking about some of that, but I, I, I'm still working on these dynamics. And you've talked about the two sets of candidates, U.S. Senate candidates in Georgia running in pairs, that's a little bit different. I mean, the, having two, uh, having an election at the runoff at the same time for the, in the same office in this one state is different. So talk about, so organizations are coming from out of state. We talked about how that works and not creating resentment inside a state. Do you know from your work so far, are they checking in with Stacey Abrams or the D- Democratic National Committee? And, and how are they, I mean, because Stacey Abrams with her 10 years of organizing, her 800,000 voters registered in the last, what is that, year and a half, two years. So where are organizations checking in with? Which entities? Yeah. Oh, oh, overwhelmingly, the kind of umbrella organizations in the state are Fair Fight Action and New Georgia Project and Poder Latinx. Those are the three kind of overarching organizations. Then there's Black Voters Matter, which is organizing kind of nationally. They are a national org and they're directing their folks in certain targeted ways in the, in the state. I think it's very, there is an overarching cluster, a coalition also called America Votes that has about 15 organizations in it, some in Georgia, some that are national, that are all united in their work here. It is my impression that nobody's showing up 
unkind of oriented and undirected in the state, which is exactly the way you should be showing up is completely directed, completely shepherded in the state. So we're, we have not traveled at all and we won't travel at all unless we're brought in at the invitation of some of those folks. They have told us that they might want us to come. We're awaiting those kind of marching orders. It is my impression that the out-of-staters are showing up completely under the umbrella of the in-staters. And that's the way from the civil rights movement forward, we know that change has to happen in communities. Okay. And that's, and the reason this community radio is covering this is because of that very impact you're talking about. This does define it. And I, I mean, with your journalism background, I'm sure you're even more, so you're t- more provoked than I am, but I'm plenty provoked when uh, there was for, there were several weeks where mainstream media was building a sort of inevitability into a Republican majority in the U.S. Senate, but they've backed off of that a little bit. It took them a little too long, in my estimation. I'm sorry, I didn't quite follow what you no, said. No, there. no, that, that, that there was this sort of momentum created for the Republican Senate incumbents in Georgia by the fact that mainstream media was giving a sense of inevitability about the Republicans maintaining the majority in the U.S. Senate. Uh, post, post the outcome of the other Senate race, you mean, like between, like after the Republicans got to 50 in their other votes? Correct. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you that for, for several weeks after the initial votes came in for all of the other Senate races, uh, there was this regular dialogue in this country that it, that assumed that Republicans had control of the Senate. I think we've we've actually reached more of an equilibrium now, where where the news coverage is presenting it as an unknown. Yes, and unknown, finally, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think I, I agree with you that that's a really a good that's a really good place to be. Of course, it should be an unknown. Of course, it should. Yeah, because momentum is really important when there's such a short turnaround, when after everybody's run the marathon and they have to do the sprint, as that analogy has been pretty well worn. Well, I I wanted to get to some of the messaging and the time that we have together uh, still, David, is there's this coded language that's being used by, uh, used against Reverend Warnock, the Black American candidate challenging Kelly Leffler, the incumbent, and the coded messaging used that David Perdue's using against John Ossoff, who is an American Jew. And in in the incumbents trying to sort of dog whistle their white Christian America through this campaign. Yeah, Raphael Warnock is the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, which was Dr. Martin Luther King Sr.'s church and then Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s church. And, and so he is in, a, in this, this long arc uh, among Black American leadership in this country. And he would be the first Democratic Southern Black Senator in American history. There's only been three African-American Southern Senators in US history. They've all been Republicans, two during Reconstruction and now Tim Scott in South South Carolina. Carolina. Mm -hmm. Um, But Warnock, because Democrats were the racist, the more racist party of the South, that this would be the first Democratic African-American Southern Senator. Uh, And Ossoff would be the first Southern Jewish Senator of either party since 1885. So you have these two folks that are what we would call part of the new South. They're attempting to bring America into a South that is a more inclusive, diverse, welcoming place. And wow, just think about that. The two of them, if they were both to get elected and after Biden narrowly won the state, like that's, you can see why George is in the middle of this, this tornado right now, right? And it's the middle of this hurricane. Yeah, it's a hurricane. It's huge. 
the the, the, the the coded language that you're seeing against the two of them is sometimes explicit and often implicit. So against Warnock, it's that he's a radical, that he's an out, he's an agitator, um, that he is uh, linked to, to the, the communists and the, the folks who want to undermine American life. That is the same language that's been used against African-American protesters forever in this country. And Warnock is just the latest indicator of that, that he leads this radical church that, by the way, Kelly Loeffler spoke at just about a year and a half ago. Oh, is that right? But, I don't think we knew that. Okay. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So what, the, did she, so the, what was her message? She came on Martin Luther King Jr. Day and she spoke about, you know, inclusivity. And she said, I would love to come back. And this is an honor to be here. Um, and so that's an ad that the Warnock campaign is now running in response to Leffler. So the, the way in which you, you otherize, uh, which is a more academic term, you turn people into like non-Americans is you, you, you portray them as non-white Christian uh, men, particularly, is you treat them as outside the mainstream as not real Americans. So with Purdue and Ossoff, for example, the very first ad that the Purdue campaign was a, was a hard copy ad that they ran against John Ossoff. And they, the, in the ad, they lengthened mm-hmm. the size of the nose of John Ossoff, which is an anti-Semitic trope against Jewish people. For generations. So, for for generations. For, right, for forever. And, and so the, sometimes it's explicit and what, other times it's more implicit. And when you're in the South and you have this whole bastion of old South folks over here, they don't need a lot of cues or signals they just want to know that you're kind of with them. So you run an ad like that once or you're Leffler and you're making the case that that Warnock is a radical and can't be trusted and he's, he's, he's a communist. Well, you're 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 not using race in either case explicitly, but you're playing upon those fears to the white Christian America. And both of them are making the case, Purdue and Leffler, that they are saving America. They're to save America. And that so that's straight up saving what America exactly, white Christian male America. So the campaign videos that I've seen, I'm going to, I'm speaking specifically to Reverend Warnock's. They're very clever. They're there's, I've seen on Twitter, like entire seminars conducted about every detail inside, especially the, the recent one with him walking the beagle. Uh, uh, yeah, 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 it, yeah. And so, I mean, they're clever, but in terms of what you're saying is the importance of messaging, that clever might be only sort of stuck in a, an echo chamber. Is that sufficient to invigorate the side? Because you said this is all about turnout. It's not about right. persuasion. So are the clever messages enough to create and, and invigorate a voter turnout? Um, no, they're not. They're not enough. They are not. That's why if you look only at the advertisements, you're going to get only part of the picture. But when you have, when you have a turnout operation that is, that is uh, led by a Fair Fight Action, Stacey Abrams' group, and a New Georgia project, and you have folks from all over the country that are making calls, texts, and postcards into the state to mobilize voters, then you marry a whole ecosystem of messages. You have the turnout operation, you have a Georgia first uh, kind of message, and then you have this kind of like, hey, I'm not crazy. I'm not, I'm, I'm a normal American message that Warnock and Ossoff are offering. Ultimately, I think that the combination of those will make it very close. I don't know who's going to win these races. I do know they're going to be very, very close. So given the closeness, any one factor could be critical. Sure. And we're, we're watching 
the United States Supreme Court sending out some pretty uh, eye-opening rulings that deal with, that are pitting their interpretation of the First Amendment, the right of assembly in places of uh, worship against public health catastrophes. I use that word totally advisedly, catastrophes. Would those rulings energize a particular voter of a critical, to the critical extent in this runoff election, David? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think the only court rulings that matter right now have to do with votes and vote counting. Um, I think that um, the reality is that in Georgia, you already had a governor that was not following many of the protocols that you see nationally. He, that's a red state. Red states have been far less likely to follow the masking and the, the protocols around distancing. Those are state-based decisions. So I, I don't really see that as a dramatic impact, those kinds of rulings in, in more reddish states. I see them as having more impact in, in, governor, in states where Democrats are governors. So I don't think those matter. I do think every single court decision um, that's occurring at the Supreme Court level, which is where the, the cases are now arriving. The first one's arrived right now. at the Supreme Court. Yep, just got there. And at the state levels around the country, those may mean much more because they're all feeding the rhetoric around vote fraud and conspiracies and who's controlling the Senate and who's the president. That's where this country is obsessed with right now. And this is the damn shame, Claudia, because the reality is all of our attention should be on the coronavirus right now. All of it, every bit of it in this country should be focused on that because of the economic and the educational and the health tolls on so many of us. And yet this is a president that doesn't care one bit about that. All he cares about is that he become president. So David Domke, tell us what kinds, this is your, uh, your pitch to my listeners. You wanna give them some assignments, some takeaways, how to follow things, how to follow up on things. So I think that, uh, first of all, if you're, just, if you're following, to use the word you, just, you had, if you're following them, then I think that you, you want to be uh, uh, reading a newspaper such as the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Subscribe to it for the next six weeks. You should. There's great coverage going on in That's that That's a great state, idea. Okay, I'll do that. that. Paper. The, you want to be following uh, some people on Twitter. There's a particular guy named Niles Francis, who's really great on Twitter and is in Atlanta. And you want to dial into the kind of discussion that is Georgia specific. Let's not just use the national media to filter our lenses of this, because they're not going to give you the on the ground analysis. That is what you're going to get from people in Georgia. On the flip side, on the more on the very, very conservative side, I encourage you to follow L. Lynn Wood who is a conservative lawyer, who is a Trumpian and is absolutely representing the conspiracy theorist side and is followed by hundreds of thousands of folks. He lives in Atlanta. Uh, he represented Richard Jewell, the guy who had, was claimed to have bombed, done the bombing during the, the Olympics in 1996, but was not the bomber. Uh, and so Lynn Wood has a huge following in the state and he represents the folks who are arguing that this is all a conspiracy. Is he the one but, that's side by side with Emily Powell? She was Sidney Powell. Yes, Sidney Powell, yes. I mean, was Sidney yeah. Powell. Yeah, okay, it's, wow, it's a, that guy. The, the, the He's a flamethrower. Right, Sidney Powell, and, but Powell does it nationally, okay? Um, and Wood is very focused on Georgia. Okay. Uh, but they are, they're like the mayors of crazy town in the, the kind of environment right now. But if you're going to do more than follow, I strongly encourage folks 
to get involved through some organization that is either work that is either in Georgia, Fair Fight or New Georgia are great, Podair, Latinx, which is Latino power, or through Georgia Equality, which is a great LGBTQ kind of organization that focuses on work around elections in Georgia, or to work with organizations that are not in Georgia, but have partnerships in Georgia. That's where Common Power comes in. There are a lot of organizations like that. Swing Left is working through Georgia organizations. So there are, there's no shortage of that kind of work. I would encourage you to, to people to take action and not just to follow. To follow is to produce a paralysis and a discouragement and a confusion. To take action is the antidote. We may not win for democracy, but we will have tried. Well, I mean, look at Stacey Abrams' record. She lost in 2018, but she won super big in 2020. I'm, that must be a refrain somewhere inside Georgia as well as outside. Absolutely, absolutely. She and she she's been interviewed and done podcasts all over the place. So listen to her. But she talks about the arc of her work from 2010 to today. And they lost and lost and lost and lost, but they kept getting closer. Okay. And eventually, if you keep working and you do the work, then eventually you have a chance. And so that's what we have. We have a chance. Well, David Domke, this has been such a pleasure. I can't wait until I get to speak with Charles Douglas III. I'm going to have him on my other show, Digging Out. We will then spend a great deal of time to the particular activities that Common Power, and I understand it's, it is a partisan organization. That is right. Well, okay. well, well no, wait, wait a second. Let's back that up. We're an organization that works with partisan candidates but we are not an arm of the Democratic Party. We work with anybody who supports voting and voting expansion in this country. That happens to be only Democrats right now, but maybe in the future that won't be. Okay, because when I talked, at the, uh, I chatted in the salon about Georgia shift and he took exception that that's, <laughs> that's not where we're going, but that's because of the tactical strategic aspect of this runoff election, but it could. Yep. Okay. Yes, yeah. And uh, so I think that his point is, you got to make the case for why people should vote for certain candidates in America, in a party, in a polarized country. Right now, there's one party that is more supportive of voting and one party that's completely opposed to it. So, yeah, that's a partisan reality right now. But we call ourselves pan-partisan. All right. Okay. We, we are we are aligned with the Democratic Party. But our goal would be five years from now, six years from now, 10 years from now, that we're supporting uh, candidates across the spectrum who are fighting for voting rights. That's not crazy to imagine that, but it just, right now it is not the case. Well, you're too modest. I think you should include your Twitter handle as another uh, person to follow. And folks, there's a lot of David Domkeys out there. The one, is it with the, is it the women's, is it the soccer team that's part of yeah. your graphic on your, yeah. on your wall? It's, it's the women's national team, yes. And it's, so it's at DSD as in Scott, Domke, D.S. Domke, D-O-M-K-E. That's the okay. Twitter handle. Okay. Well, David Domke, thank you so much for giving us such a generous allotment of time today. Hey, Claudia, thank you so much for your work. Thank you. My guest was David Domke, a University of Political Science and Communications professor. He's on leave to devote his time as director of fieldwork and learning, among other activities, with Common Power. We're recording this today on December 5th. Thanks again. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, 
pharmaceutical professor Matab Jafari, one of my earliest guests on Ask a Leader, returns to share wisdoms on student well-being as well as her upcoming book. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. And as the great public health spokesperson Peter Frampton says, quote, I wear a seatbelt when I drive my car, I wear a mask during a pandemic, and I wear a parachute when I jump out of the plane.